0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot.
0: Hey, you guys, before we get started, a quick reminder about the Other People app. This podcast has its own free app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program, so you go get the app. It's free. You get it on your device. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 episodes are always free. You have the app on your device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's very user-friendly, and uh, if you want more than 50, if you want to get at the Deep Archives, if you want access to every single episode, more than 400 and counting, anywhere you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for a premium subscription. Other people premium, you sign up right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything, including my conversations with writers like Hilton Owls, George Saunders, Tom Parada, Eric Larson. Sheila Hetty, Roxanne Gay, Heidi Julewitz, Maggie Nelson, the list goes on. Uh, other people, premium. It's a great way to support the show. The Other People with Brad Listy app, it's free. Did I say everything?
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it like your head exploded, seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing.
0: Just one person at just one time. Here we go again. <laughs> and this is it. Right. This is other people. Welcome to the Other People Program. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I'm hot. I'm dehydrated. I'm lethargic. I'm listless. Increasingly disoriented. This episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. If you need some new earbuds or headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code Other People O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Get yourself some earbuds. Uh, get yourself some headphones. Tweakedaudio.com. It's nice to be with you guys. Uh, I'm on vacation this week, meaning uh, physically right now I am on vacation. Imagine me on vacation. Uh, In the mountains of Colorado I'm in the wilderness as we speak But uh, the podcast is not on vacation The podcast doesn't take vacations The podcast is here for you I've arranged it that way in advance So with that in mind I think we should just get right to the main event I'm very, very pleased to report That Chuck Klosterman is my guest today Uh, I've been a fan of his for a a long time I've wanted to have him on this program for a long time And now uh, he's here Or at least he was here on uh, one of the hotter days in the history of the other people podcast. Uh, We were both sweating profusely. And uh, if there are listeners out there for whom that visual is appealing, uh, you're welcome. Imagine me and Chuck Klosterman glistening with sweat in a small, filthy room. Uh, That's basically the idea. Chuck's new book is called But What If We're Wrong? Thinking about the present as if it were the past. It is out there now from Blue Rider Press. Uh, just just great to have him here on the show. Uh, wonderful conversation from a great writer. Here he is, folks. This is Chuck Klosterman. I was saying this when, when we were standing outside. This is basically like sitting in a sauna with another man.
1: <laughs> yes, this is definitely... The hottest podcast I will have ever done. I, it's like a, it, it's it's almost sort of like some kind of physical challenge.
0: Yeah, we can go shirtless if you want. Can't, I've never well, done that. You know,
1: I actually was sitting here going like, if if I start sweating and I take my shirt off, will that become part of the podcast?
0: Shirt is fine. If you take your pants off, I'm probably going to get a little, you know, concerned. Okay. Okay. Uh, well. But well, it's great to have you here.
1: It's great to be here. I
0: appreciate you coming out. Uh, you're on tour. I am. Yeah, I'm yeah, in mean, multi city.
1: Yeah, I kind of did the East Coast, and I did the middle of the country, and now I'm doing the West Coast. And, you, and
0: you're and you living in New York? I live in Brooklyn right now. You right? do? You like it?
1: Yes, I do. Of okay. all the places I've lived in my life, that is definitely the place I feel the least weird. Okay. Because everyone there is kind of weird. Right. right. What yeah. part of Brooklyn are you in? Well, I live... Um, it's a little complicated. It's Some people would say it's Borough Hill. Some people would say it's the very edge of Carroll Gardens. Okay. I just... I'm not sure. I don't, also I've never understood why in New York that question is so much more important than anywhere else. It's like yeah, people really want you to say like the like kind of like the the the, like the, the relative nickname or whatever of the area you're from. I
0: I, 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 I I don't even know why I asked you. I just like it seems like the thing to ask people is. when they say they're from Brooklyn. Yeah,
1: you, you ask what part of Brooklyn, and then unlike other places, it's totally acceptable to say like, "What's your mortgage?" <laughs> like that's the only place I've ever lived where people will ask that as a second question. Yeah. What is your
0: mortgage, Jeff? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you want to know? I don't, I don't care. It's like,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so uh, the new book. The basic premise is, what if we're wrong? It's kind of taking a look at all of the things that we sort of accept culturally, socially, um and and turning them them
1: on their head. Yeah, I think in some ways the subtitle actually reflects what the book is a little more accurately. There are parts of the book where I'm literally asking what if we're wrong about these things. But the subtitle is thinking about the present as if it were the past. And to me that actually is closer to what most of the book is. Like just this attempt to sort of visualize how this period of time will seem – to people who have not yet been born and will be looking back in 100 or 300 or 1,000 years yeah. in much the same way that we look back at the 19th century or the 16th century or, you know. Yeah, there's,
0: it, it, it's like this weird hubris or blindness that happens to people, I think probably in every time, where you just take at face value the things that you think are right or that you think are solid.
1: Well, but in a sense, there's no way around that, okay? It, it, you know – every generation of people has to sort of deal with this idea that the understanding of reality we have is the most accurate vision we've ever had that we're sort of building on the ideas of the past and that the way uh, we are experiencing art the way we're experiencing science the way we're experiencing politics and sports and all of these things because we're here and we have a firsthand sort of knowledge of these things that the way we perceive them must be the closest possible sort of definition of what they are, and yet the history of ideas is really the history of people being wrong. Right. And what will what will eventually happen is that, in the same way we reinvent our own version of history, people are going to reinvent uh, this period, and it's it's just sort of this strange paradox: the fact that we're experiencing it. Gives us almost the least ability to sort of understand what it means to be alive right now. When you're that in it, is decided by people who have not yet been born.
0: Okay, but you can do. You can get a little bit predictive with it. You can look around at certain, you know, practices, trends, um, cultural values, and you can make some predictions about what you think might in in you know, with the benefit of hindsight, not live up to their billing, their current billing.
1: I guess you can certainly always make predictions, and when you write a book about the future in any way. And as this is, I guess. That's what people want. Okay. Many times when I do interviews now, people will be like, make a prediction about you know <laughs> say something that's that we're wrong about now that we'll understand later. And I'll always go like, well, uh, you know, this isn't a book of predictions. And they'll be like, please make one. <laughs> like just make a just prediction. Tell me and what's that becomes happen. sort of often the center of the story because people do have this urge to sort of to look to want to look forward and visualize uh, the Unknown Future, but I, I really feel like I'm kind of doing the opposite. What I'm trying to do, and this is a somewhat impossible task, but I'm doing it because this is a book, like I'm trying to jump forward to these people who do not exist and visualize how they will look backwards. Like right. the, It's almost the opposite of a prediction. It's how will things that are happening be reinterpreted and recontextualized since that, to me, seems to be the main thing that happens with uh, sort of the way time unspools. I know? was
0: thinking about Donald Trump in that context recently. Like yes. Like, like uh, apart from your book, I was just thinking, like, what are people going to think when they look back on this period in American um, political history – well, that I this mean, guy has ascended yeah. as the nominee of a major party.
1: I mean, it seems like they'll think one of two things, uh, which are completely unconnected and are really just sort of outcome-based. Like, okay, the assumption to me, I think that that is probably mathematically impossible for Trump to win the election. I think that there's, uh, you know, and even if he did, he would be. I'm like, knocking uh, on wood right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> like he would be. Even if if he did, he would be. The most ineffective president, so ineffective he might not even be damaging. I mean he would have no support in Congress. He would have no – his approval rating would be through the floor. He would try to build a wall that would never exist. He has no ideology. He would constantly be putting himself in a position probably to be impeached quite often. You know, If, if, if what Clinton did or whatever, people always want to impeach the president. It would be very easy to do this. But – Let's assume that he loses in a, landsla- in a landslide. I think then probably what happens is he and really the selection of Sarah Palin in, in, in the previous election yeah. will sort of be seen as sort – of, well, this was the end of the Republican Party where sort of the demographic, demographic shifts in the country moved away from the things that they valued and he and Palin will be seen as sort of like – almost like the desperate Hail Marys of the GOP. Like these were like you know these last attempts. But now let's say somehow Trump does win. We've been wrong about him every way along. You know he'll never get the nomination. Then he did all these things. He'll he'll drop out of the race in November. He never did. He doesn't even want to be president. He doesn't want to be president. <laughs> <you know. laughs> right. So let's say something happens in some you know unforeseen scenario that he he, he wins Florida by a hair. Something happens in Ohio that turns people against Hillary and he wins Ohio and suddenly in this unexpected turn of events, Trump has become Mr. President. Well then, I suppose, when people look back at this period, they will probably say, uh, you know what the biggest issue in the country was at the time was identity politics and the discomfort with how that was changing the way day-to-day life was, so much so That they elected someone president whose main sort of philosophical contribution seems to be I'm against this sort of kind of progressive language or the idea of of identity politics being a valid form of expression regardless of what the merits of the idea like I think then that you know so so what happens is how Trump actually does in this election dictates the memory, but not because people will say like well he succeeded or he failed, it will say something different about the period.
0: Yeah, you know? and the people.
1: Yes. it's. I mean, that's a... Because anything that gets remembered, it's never for the thing itself. It's right. always for the ancillary sort of rippling effect it has and what it then can be used as sort of a prism to understand other things.
0: That's it, that right there, you just verbalized uh, like a Closterman, a, a very sophisticated Closterman take. Like, that was it. I, I feel like you have a unique ability to synthesize cultural information and to get at uh get at it at a deeper level than most people have you always been able to do that like do you are you a consumer of culture um you know to a degree that exceeds the average person
1: well you know i don't think that i am a i don't think i exceed the amount i consume of culture in fact i know that i have certainly friends in the media who consume more than i do um what may have happened is this you know uh like, uh, I'm from a farm, okay? Like, I came from a farm outside of a town of 500 people in North Dakota. So, like, when I grew up, we didn't have cable.
0: What kind of farm was it? Dairy farm or...?
1: When I was very little, it was a dairy farm. Then we got into beef cattle, but it was mostly, when I was young, it was mostly crops. It was mostly wheat, barley, corn, beans. Now my brother still runs it, and it's basically just what I considered row-cut crops, corn and beans and, yeah. You know. Um, but the thing is, it was like... Unusually isolated, like significantly more isolated than the town depicted in Footloose okay, okay. like like <laughs> was there the, was there dancing uh, there was dancing, you could <laughs> dance, but like you couldn 't get m t v even if you lived in town you yeah, know yeah uh, there there, it, there was i think six cable channels or seven cable channels for the people who lived in town, but I lived out of the country, so i didn 't have that um, Radio was very limited. there was a top forty station, there was an album rock station, everything else was mostly country and um the only way that I had access to books was was literally in the high school library. So, what would happen is, is you know, I had to think about culture through what I had, you know, and for a long period, you know, sixth, seventh grade, I had five cassettes. So, I would just listen to these five cassettes. Which were what? Well, it was Molly Cruz's Shout the Devil and uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon. And, Lots a uh, barking and shouting. Yeah, Van Halen's 1984. <laughs> okay. Uh, Def Leppard's Pyromania. And then Kiss Animalize. Okay. And I would play these cassettes. So, and then also, I Top Eliminator. I guess I had another one in there. So I, w- I think maybe I got Kiss Animalize later. But regardless, I would listen to these cassettes over and over again. And I would read the liner notes compulsively. And I would look at the covers on the cassette. And I would think about these things. And I would read things into these records that the artist could have never intended. <laughs> because this is all I sort of had. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, now, I think that the consequence of that is that I am sort of molded me into this person who can consume very, very mainstream culture, like very straight culture, not counterculture stuff, just sort of normal stuff, um, but sort of work through the ideas in it the same way um, a normal person would work through art with that actual intention. Like, you know, if I think if I had been raised, say, in Minneapolis, I think that I would be in many ways very different – as a critic, because I assume that my friends would have okay. Like when I went to Spin magazine and I f- became really very close friends with the people who worked there, it was just this thing that I I'd never, I couldn't believe there were all these people who were so much like me. But when we talked about our high school experiences, they tend to be the kids who were into, you know, Husker Du and the Smiths and the Cure and these kind of interesting things. They gravitated toward that. Right. I bet I would have too if I would have had the chance, but because I didn't, like. Axel Rose was the most interesting cultural figure in my life yeah that he was contradictory and that he seemed sort of political without having political ideas and stuff so I thought about that so that maybe I mean what you're asking is a very flattering question I don't even know if it's true but if it is I bet it's because of that
0: well no but it makes yeah. it makes kind of a weird sense like mm-hmm. I, I think at first blush you might think to yourself oh somebody who's this um, capable of um, I don't know, synthesizing, processing all these different cultural uh forces and coming up with really interesting insights into them would be benefiting from an abundance of intake, but the in truth it's actually the product of having been limited. Oh, it
1: was a, th- that that obstruction was a huge benefit. Yeah. The other benefit was that you know I worked in as the daily newspaper reporter for 8 years and You're kind of constantly doing that. But you go out to to do a story on someone or something and you get back to the office and, you know, in in those days it was column inches. It wasn't words. You'd be like, we have 10 column inches for this story. So you'd be like, well, I need to explain this complicated thing in an interesting way in a limited amount of space. So the key is figuring out what really matters about this, not just reflecting exactly what happened. Was sort of trying to figure out what about this thing has merit outside of itself so I think that helped too I really do feel like working at newspapers is a very good way to learn how to write yeah uh, absolutely it's a dis- uh, it's enforced discipline deadline but it's also concision yes and and the thing is it's like you have all these rules like you know you can't there's language you can't use and you got to use short paragraphs and you got to use inverted pyramid and all these things but because it's coming out every day, and it's a—it was a very complicated process, at least compared to internet publishing. It was much more complicated. If you stay within those rules, you do have a degree of freedom, you know, because they don't—they're—they're they're not in a position where they can sort of rethink right. what you're doing. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's go. Let's go back. I want to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. You know, like what happened. Um, you know, on the farm. <laughs> And oh, way back then. Yeah, okay. let's, let's, yeah, I mean, like let's get started. Like you, you said, you had access to books in your high school library. That had to have been formative. But like, when when did the light go on for you? When did you start to think that you were going to write?
1: Boy, that would have been later in life because you know, uh, I I had a limited view of what my life would be. I assumed that I would go to college, and I would major in English because I had been good at English in high school. And I would become an English teacher and either a football coach or a basketball coach at a high school. And then my hope would that eventually I would become like an offensive coordinator at a college, like a football offensive coordinator in the SEC. That was, in fact, it's bizarre. I, I That's a good by, job, by the way. Well, it is. <laughs> but, but here's what I think is very interesting. A few years ago, when my wife and I moved, you know, I was going through all my stuff, and you get those books that you fill out when you're a senior in high school. And you know, one of the things is like your dream job. And my dream job is to be an offensive coordinator at like an SEC school. But what's so weird to me is that in my dream life, I'm under somebody else. Like I'm not even the main coach <laughs> in my dream. It's like I'm, I'm, this, I'm like I'm – I was a bizarre thing. when I, I didn't, It didn't seem weird to me. Maybe when I wrote it, I was like here's like a funny – thing to say or a clever thing yeah. I just think it's really interesting that my dreams were so limited that I couldn't even imagine having the best job in my dream Um <laughs> You're a man of then humility. you humility. Know, I went to college and I was walking around the first week and there was a little kiosk for all the various things on campus you could do and there was one for the college newspaper and I was shocked that you got paid to write for it I couldn't believe it. I assumed you just did it for free because in high school you just did it for free, and I was like, "This is this is I'm gonna do this. I'm like, if I need a job, this is better than working, you know." Uh, And almost by chance, I realized that one, I I kind of naturally do it, and two, I really liked it. So I was like, "Boy, if this is something that I like to do, and I seem like just sort of inherently okay at." I should make this into my career. Plus, if you major in journalism, I know what the job is. You become a journalist. Like, I didn't know if you majored in history. You become a historian? That didn't seem like a job or whatever, you know? So it seemed like a practical thing to do. Where where did you go to college? The University of North Dakota.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that is
1: in? Grand Forks, North Dakota. Grand Forks. There's two state schools, like big schools in North Dakota. There's North Dakota State, which is in Fargo has the good football team, yeah, and then UND, which is in Grand Forks, they have the good hockey team. All right, that's the, if anybody listening to this, if they know of those schools, those are the only reasons they would.
0: Okay, yeah. and were you? You were an athlete. If you had an interest, in high in, school, in high school, not in college. Good athlete.
1: Well, you know, I was. I mean, I remember now. I went to a real small school. There yeah. were eighty kids in my high school, so I played nine man football. Okay, so I mean, I guess like I was, I was the, I was the best. Player on our basketball team. I was the in, I was all conference in basketball. I was all conference in football, but that was mostly just because our team was good. What position? Well, I played both ways. I was a, I was a receiver and a linebacker and a punter. Oh wow! Yeah, two way player. Well, everybody was triple threat. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I mean, if you play nine man football and you only play one way, that means like you're not very good. <laughs> um, then I would run track in the spring, um, and uh, so th- when I think about high school, I mean that's what my memories. Are everything seemed to be built around sports. Like I don't, I don't remember my classes that much. I mean, it, 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 it's that was sort of my whole life. My whole life was kind of get through the day at school, and you practice, and then you go home, and you listen to metal. Like that's what I did, you know. And, and school wasn't. You know, at a small school like that, I mean like, okay, my favorite teacher was my English teacher, but she had a physical education degree, Okay, Um, (laughs) You know, and and she was a good teacher, but I remember going back when I was in college and I went back to see her and I was like, uh, I just read this amazing book. I read The Trial by Franz Kafka and she had never heard of it. Or him. And now I think back, boy, it's odd that my English teacher didn't know who Kafka was, but that's kind of how it was. My math teacher was a great teacher, but he was actually a plumber. Who also taught. So they were, it was not that they weren't good teachers, it just that it was a different sort of situation. Everything was kind of for the kids in the middle. If you were very smart or very dumb, it didn't matter. You yeah. know, it was all the same. So I don't ever remember doing homework in school. Like I must have, but I, I don't ever remember bringing books home. I would just do the work in study hall and kind of just, it didn't seem. Didn't seem in, I only applied to one college, for example. Yeah. I, I always think to myself, I, it blows my mind when I talk to high school kids now who are so stressed out about getting into college, and you know, even the, my friends who went to good schools on the East Coast and how competitive it was is like, I took the ACT, I didn't even pay attention to what the score was. <laughs> I applied to one school, and just as. You know, and applied for the financial aid. I, don't, at, I mean, I the financial aid was such a bigger part of this to me, applying for that than to the school.
0: Right. Yeah. Just getting the money to go.
1: Yeah. I and, mean, I was real worried. I was like, because you know, you're that age, like you just don't know. As it turns out, they'll give anybody a. You know, a student loan. But at the time, I was like, "What if they don't?" And yeah, I'm like, you're, and I you're 18 a,
0: years old. You have no idea about yes. that stuff.
1: So I was much more worried about the aid money than I was about getting into the school, which <laughs> is so nuts now that <laughs> I say it. But that's how it was, you know.
0: So what? What about like living in – and what was the town again that you grew up in? Wine near North Dakota. Okay. So did you hit some sort of wall in adolescence where you were like, "Get me the fuck out of here"? Was there a lot of angst? You're listening to metal, or was that was it?
1: Well, you know, not to the degree that other people who've had a remotely similar experience seem to have i you know yeah, you don't strike me as somebody who has like a ton of like like anger or no i didn't i mean i you know i rem- remember having friends and of course it was you know high school's stressful yep. i remember it being a stressful time but i don't ever remember thinking like it's terrible to be here i wish i was in Chicago or something. I mean, I I just didn't think that way. I didn't know enough to think that way. I mean, to me, I'd go to Fargo. It was sixty-five miles away. To me, Fargo seemed big. Like you know, you could I could go into the record store and find albums that I hadn't read about. To me, that was a surprising thing. I because I felt like I normally would know this stuff and I'd be surprised. You know, um, I. My aspiration once I got into college was like I want to work at the St. Paul Pioneer Press or the Minneapolis Star Tribune at some point. That's a good newspaper. Maybe I'll write one book in my life. But that, even that, these are ideas I had in my mid-20s. In high school, I did not think about the future. I really didn't. I thought about
0: – But that's great in a way. Yeah. You're not freaking out about it. And you're not, like, setting yourself up with all of these, like, grandiose plans and, and, like, markers in your life that you then – it
1: creates a lot of stress. Plus, you know, I, I had I never had never met a writer until – like, I took a job in Akron, Ohio at that newspaper. I met a few people who had written books. Prior to that, I'd never met one writer. I mean, there just aren't a lot of writers from North Dakota. Now, weirdly, there's two from my hometown, a girl three years younger than me. Has written a book about uh, like realizing she was a lesbian growing up in this place, and it's interesting because her experience then did feel much more, I think, claustrophobic. And she, you know, but because I was like pretty standard, yeah, you know, like I, I didn't have any uh, big issue outside of like, oh, I wish girls liked me, or I wish this specific girl liked me, or. Um, you know, I was a quarterback and then I wasn't good enough, so I got moved to receiver. Things like that. Right. Mean, like, the, the, like in retrospect, not an issue that uh, is traumatic, you know. Um, my dad had had a stroke when I was about 10 or 11. Jesus. Um, and he recovered, but, I mean, he was never the same. It affected him emotionally. Uh, you know, He had been a very – both he and my mother had been very stoic people. And so, so my brother took over the farm. But as a consequence, like I never had an adversarial relationship with my parents. I went out of – I was the seventh kid in my family. And oh, my God. My older brothers and sisters, I had been able to watch them. Like my oldest sister is 18 years older than me. So I was born in June. And she moved out of the house in August. Okay, so I you know lived with her two months, but I'd seen their experiences with my parents, and I just thought, boy, I just wanted to be the easy kid for them. I don't you know they were getting older and stuff like that, so I just sort of kept to myself and didn't try to and tried to stay out of trouble, and uh, that was sort of my memory of like my memories of high school is being in my room a lot and just you know, um, be, you know I
0: were you the, wait you were seventh of seven yeah. So you're the youngest. Yeah. That's like and that's is this one of those things where it's like seven kids to help work on the farm? Or is this a religious? Well, we were
1: just Catholic, so that's just how it goes. I mean there's I have five the first five kids in my family are all lumped together, like you know, my oldest sister is eighteen years older than me. My oldest brother is seventeen years older, and then my next sister sixteen. So my mom essentially had three kids in three years. Jesus. Okay? And then there's a little gap where I guess she was tired, <laughs> and then there's two more, and then there was a seven year gap. And Then there's me and my sister. So okay. it's like there's so it's like three, two, and two.
0: And now are you close with your uh, siblings?
1: I, I, I yeah, I mean I have good relations with them. I mean I'm not close the way I guess. Some people seem to be with their siblings. Like my wife's best friend is her sister, right? Um, but there's only two of them. Um,
0: Are they geographically close? Is there proximity? Three
1: live in North Dakota, and four live throughout the country. So, um, not really. They're not. Re- we're not. You know. And
0: they're just on the phone a lot.
1: Yeah, and now you know, no one talks on the phone anymore.
0: Right? They're just texting. Not even. It's that. almost
1: like <laughs> the relationship stays static. I mean, we're not this is one thing that i just i i guess i thought was normal until i i you know met other families or whatever but like when my wife comes home to my place at christmas or thanksgiving or whatever um she's always like i think in some ways confused and at times uncomfortable how we don't talk the way other families talk like when i go to her she's from portland when i go to see her family it's almost like being on the radio like if, if there's a period where no one's talking, someone will just start talking, start asking questions. No dead air. Yeah, but we're not so much like that. I mean, you know, the television will be on and we'll watch it and we'll talk, but not, it's, there are qualities now about the Midwest, which when I was growing up, I assumed were inaccurate stereotypes. And now I see, well, there's some truth in that, that uh, uh, it's a less performative way of life you know, I mean, it's you know. I once asked my mom, "It's sort of like, like, have you had a? Would you say you've had a like a, a great life, a good life, or you know?" And she was kind of annoyed by the question. She was like, "That's not a. You don't ask. Your life is good. Your <laughs> life is your life. Basically, is what she says. Like, your life is what your life is, and you try to, to make it good. The idea of sitting around wondering if you've had a good life." That is not part of.
0: There's no time for that. Yeah,
1: I mean, when I go back to even to Fargo, and you know, and things have changed a lot. But when I meet people in Fargo, um, they are in no way remotely impressed that I wrote a book. They're more like, "Is that a good job? Like, how much do you get paid to do that? Like, is it? Are you ha- like, are you happy that uh, you don't really have to work in the way of people? Like, they don't the the actual thing about the book, the book itself is, like, I'm sure I sell way more books in Eugene, Oregon or something than I do in Fargo, even though the towns are about the same size.
0: And you're kind of like a hometown hero, or you you should be, but you're not. Well, yeah,
1: I don't don't think that I am. I don't, you know, also particularly since that, you know, like all the people who work in the media there, at the newspaper and the TV stations, I was with them. When I start, like I started in '94, this on the exact same day as the person who's now the editor of the newspaper in Fargo. So we started the same day. We went to lunch every day. So I think that I am for them the idea that, like, in some context, I'm a a different, like, I have a different kind of notoriety or whatever outside of there. It's that's just bizarre to them. It's like I remember him just being the guy who was at the bar here, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, or the same guy, you know, like uh, you know, like. It doesn't – it's not the same. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, so – okay. So you get out of college. Mm -hmm. You majored in journalism. You wrote for the college paper.
1: um, And then you get out and what's your first real job? Well, I was very fortunate that it was 1994. So that newspaper in Fargo had a very specific concern, Gen X Readers what are we doing about these Gen X readers? They wear hats backwards and they like Soundgarden and they own skateboards. What are we going to do? So they, of course, did, which was just a total newspaper thing to do. The obvious thing would be like, we need to just kind of update the way we cover stories and make the whole paper more modern. But they were like, here's what we'll do. Every week we'll have a 16-page insert called Rage. And that will reflect all these. So I got hired immediately to do this section called Rage, and it was like... By
0: yourself or with with Pretty
1: much. I mean, the first week, I wrote 18 stories. Next week, I wrote 16 stories. The week after, 18 again. Like, I'd fill the whole thing myself. Wow. And, of course, in some ways, it was terrible because, like, I was the movie critic and the rock critic and the TV critic and the feature writer, and I was doing, you know, the same voice. But
0: what an education.
1: It was. It was like woodshedding, they say, in music. Like, that's the equivalent. Working that job was the equivalent to like going in a room and trying to play eruption on guitar every day for a year yeah um so i did that for four years and then um i i thought it was time to to like to move on or whatever like i just had kind of covered everything in fargo and i was ambitious and i was 26 and i was like i'm ready to do something else so so i applied for a job at the st louis post dispatch to be the music writer which is a job in retrospect i was totally unqualified to do i would I mean, I had never driven in a city the size of St. Louis. I don't know how I would have... You know, it was a big hip-hop at the time. Hip-hop was the big music there. And, you know, I knew as much about hip-hop as a white guy from North Dakota who grew up in the 80s. I mean, like, I knew more than the average person, but probably not enough to cover it. Somehow, though, I ended up being the runner-up for this job. And the guy who doesn't hire me is a great guy. And he calls me and he's like, you know, I think you need to move on, but, uh, but you're just... Not this job, you know. And uh, I was, I thank him and I said, so who did you hire? And he was like, what do you care? And I was like, I'm just curious. And he's like, some guy from Akron, Ohio, you've never heard of. So I just sent all my clips to Akron, Ohio. And I think that they hired me partially because they thought I was psychic. (laughs) I applied for a job. My stuff got there the day he resigned. Wow! So then they flew me out to Akron and I knew nothing about Akron. I knew there was, I knew that, I knew that. Jerry Faust had coached there. I knew that the Goodyear blimp was from there. I, I knew that there was a soapbox derby race there. Um, but I get hired at that job. So now I moved to Akron, Ohio to work at the Beacon Journal, which at the time was a very good paper. and um, you know I don't have any friends, but because they have a union, my salary doubled. I was making 22,000 in Fargo so now I'm making like 45,000. Oh wow. So I bought a computer first time I ever owned a computer. And then, like, what do you do if you have no friends and a computer? Well, you write a book. And that was it. That was it.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price price line.
0: And did you have any um models? Was there like a journalist or somebody who had written in the vein that you write in that you were looking to?
1: You know. That's not. I mean, you go through phases. You definitely go through phases. Like there was, oh, when I was in eighth grade, you know, I read Black Boy by Richard Wright. It's a weird thing for me to be reading, but I was like, I love this. This is an amazing thing to me. And then I got into like Dave Barry in high school, and then I got into Douglas Copeland at college, and then I really got into uh, like. Um, Oh, Which
0: but Douglas Copeland? Good preparation for Rage, by the way. Yes, yeah, you know, that was a long time
1: you know around that time. You know, and Raymond Carver I was in that for a while. Then I was very, very much the last person I was really into was like David Foster Wallace when like a supposedly fun thing came out as an anthology. But I will say this: I think that you kind of become a writer when you stop wanting to be like other writers. So at some point, I was like, I don't want to be influenced by anyone. Like I, it's, it's always a strange thing when they review your book, any book. If they like it, they compare you to someone else who's great. And that's always supposed to be a compliment. never feels like a compliment. I mean, to me, it's like if you start a band and someone's like, your band is great. You're like the Beatles. <laughs> well, that's only good if you're a Beatles cover band. Like, I don't want to be like another writer. So I don't – I feel pretty – under influenced in terms of compared to other right compared to other writers you know
0: well but I mean it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the uh, limited cultural uh, intake leading to maybe like a slower and deeper um, analysis you know like the repeated like the like I remember uh, reading an interview with Martin Scorsese one time and he was talking about his sickly childhood and how he would watch TV he was bedridden all the other kids are playing outside and he's inside watching like the Saturday morning movie, but they would play it on a loop, huh. because back in those days there was like three channels, yeah. and limited programming, and so it, it it was enforced repeat viewing.
1: Yeah, and when and you're that, when you're young, that's a big deal. There's this book, uh, a sports book, "Season on the Brink" by John Feinstein. Yeah, I read, I read it. The thing I remember about that is I read that book, and I finished it in almost a mechanical way. I went back to the first page and started reading again. Like I literally did not wait. Um two minutes between the last page and rereading it. So I read that book probably I read that book twice right in a row and then maybe again. I think that when you're you know, you always hear about like other writers like you know, like Hunter S. Thompson or whatever, like would retype Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. And the first time you hear that you're like, That seems like the dumbest idea possible. I kind of think I get that now. I mean, I never did that, but I can understand. Yeah, you like
0: learn the, mu- the music.
1: Yeah, because the thing is you got to learn the rules if you want to break the rules. I mean, like with anything. Uh, I, I suppose, though, I, this is kind of an arrogant thing to say, but I just I think I like about writing is that I can literally control the reality. That whatever I, however I make it is what it is. So the idea of being influenced seems like a bummer to me. Like, I I don't I'm not the kind and I and I'm not criticizing people who are like this I think because I think for especially with novelists that this tends to be the the way that it usually works is that like you want to write a book like the Great Gatsby or you know whatever the case may be whatever book you love and and you want to do your version of that but I, I'm not like that I want there I want it to be the first of whatever it is Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, you know, you have to have some sort of education. You have to have some sort of influences, but, um, you know, it seems like you, you stop being a cover band at some point and you have to start playing, you know, making your own music, writing your own books. And, um, do you feel like you did that on your first book? Like when you, when you were living in Akron and were sort of in isolation, like I
1: I just felt like I had never seen a book like this and I'd always wanted to find that book. I'd all you know, because I was, of course, I was always reading music books. I mean, really, since high school, I always have really compulsively read them. And there were just books about every kind of music jazz and punk and, you know, alternative country. But there had never been a book about metal that I felt seemed like the experience that I had had. Now, by this time, I had sort of moved out. I mean, I still liked those bands, but I wasn't listening to metal anymore. I'd, you know, like many people. I mean, I went to college right in the early 90s, so we all had made this shift where we were in the Motley crew and, and, you know, Faster Pussycat and stuff, and then now we're in Nirvana and Radiohead and all these things. But I just remembered that that was such a meaningful experience to me and seemed to be that a lot of the smartest people I had known in college had the same experience, but there just wasn't a book like that. So I was like, well, I'm going to do it. And at the time, you know, it was so uncool to write about metal like it's hard to describe this now because things have changed but at the time it was just insane like people would lie about having listened to metal (laughs) I thought the only way I could do it was to write an academic book so I wrote like a hundred and some pages that was like the sociology of listening to this music in a rural area and I had the 100 pages and I was like, well, I've seen books worse than this or whatever. So I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to send this to like Duke University Press. I didn't know Agent or anything, you know, Harvard University Press, just sent to academic presses. And I got a letter back from a woman at Columbia and I, I just – I really wish I had this letter because I'd love to contact her. It was such a big deal in my life as it turns out. She wrote me this letter and said like, hey, I really like this. We can't publish it because you swear too much. And also because the most interesting parts of this book are when you talk about your own life, which I was sort of doing out of necessity. There is no academic precedent for writing about the band Rat. (laughs) So I would just have to be like my friend John liked Rat and here's – but she's like, "You you should just do that. So then I was like, well, I'll write another 150 pages that's basically memoir metal stuff and then I chopped everything up and put it in chronological order and that was the book. Huh. That was, you know, that's what it ended up being.
0: And when we and you were writing it in the mornings before
1: work, after at work, at night. Yeah, I I must have really wanted to do it. I couldn't do this now. I'd work all day at the newspaper, I would come home, eat, and then about eight o'clock start writing till about midnight. I I did that uh, for a whole book. I just it, I cannot believe that I did that. I would never do that now. But I must have had a lot of desire.
0: Yeah. yeah, you had the energy.
1: Yes, the energy too. Yeah,
0: And so then you put the book together, you sent it out.
1: A got an agent, a guy in New York, had a clerical job at a literary agency, and he was like, well, I can't get you an agent because I'd get one for myself if I could. But here's what I can do. I can put it on someone's desk because half these things they throw out after reading the cover letter. So I'm like, well, okay. So I sent this manuscript in. A guy calls me immediately, and he's like, look – I just started doing this. I like have like two or three clients, but I want to sell this book. Um, you know, he was younger than I was. I was 27, I think, and he was – or 28, 27 or 28, and he was a year younger. Um, and I was like, well, at first I was worried, am I going to get scammed? But there's no money involved. Right, right. So I signed the contract with him, and the first thing he says is – this was in May. He's like, well, first thing is you know, nobody buys books in the summer, so I'm going to take this out in fall. At first, I was like, oh, man. Like, this is like this is never going to happen. But you took it out in September, and it, like, sold in a week.
0: Whoa.
1: For not much, 25000 bucks. But still. Then, but when I had no money. Yeah. 25, 000, I mean, that was the richest I've ever felt. Like, I just remember getting, you get the first half. I remember getting, like, you know, it was $12,500, and then the agent takes the cut. You know, and I, so I got, like, 10000 and some dollars, and I paid off, but I still owed on those financial Aid loans, yeah, and I just I remember thinking now it's like if my car breaks down, I can fix it. Like that was always my thing. If I had a thousand dollars in the bank, because I I was doing okay at newspapers, but I wasn't saving money. So the fear was always like, what happens if my car just totally breaks? And like you know, I was like, I'm I'm secure now. Yeah. Or like if I have some dental issue, I can get my teeth. Um, uh. But so yeah, so that so that book got you know, and ahead of it didn't sell great. I think it sold. You know, in hardcover, like 7,500 copies or 8,000 copies. But boy, everybody who read that book seemed like they must have been a rock critic because it got a lot of attention. And then everything happened from there. And then I knew I could write another book because if this one had done okay. Yeah. So I really, really hurriedly kind of put together an essay, idea for an essay collection. And I, I wrote it in three months just because I needed to have it. You know, so it was, that was $45,000, and that seemed like a huge, thin jump up, and I was like, now I can save this money and stuff. Uh, but that was Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And it, the hope, I think, at the time, for me, was like, well, if the last book sold 8,000 copies, maybe this would sell 10,000 copies. And then it just, everything changed. I mean, it just the book just did, it was, I mean, still bizarre that that happened. But, How know, many
0: copies did it sell? I mean, did it? It, it was like a half a million now. Jesus that's awesome
1: it's it's crazy it, it's it still sells now it still sells better than all my other books combined I well, mean this new one I don't know this new one just came out so hopefully you know I mean even not hopefully it just it's just a strange thing because it, it it's it's all basically you know it sold it's sold okay in hardcover but it's all softcover sales and it's just it seems to now be this book that's kind of like you know in college everyone buys bob marley's legend when they start smoking weed <laughs> you know and that record for a while sold 10,000 copies a week or whatever when yeah. people still bought records it's just that was the record you bought piers is this book is just the book people buy when they get to a certain age like it's the first it's the first cultural criticism They read and then it either becomes like then they stop or maybe they move on to Derrida or something more serious. But this is like the – that's the – this is the bridge it seems to be for like writing about popular culture in a way – in whatever way that they see it as, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's
1: fascinating. It's fascinating
0: how that happens.
1: Well, the main thing that makes something popular is that it's already popular. That you know. So the biggest success – the biggest reason that book is successful is because it was successful before, which is a depressing thing in some ways. It's like, you know – You get more help when you don't need it.
0: Yeah. People Uh, give free shit to rich people. Yes. Yeah. You know?
1: I did an interview with Robbie Williams, uh, the UK pop star, and he was wearing leather sweatpants. And I was sort of like what do leather sweatpants cost? And he's like, I have no idea. But once you're a millionaire, people just want you to wear expensive things. So yeah. one day I open up my mail and I have leather sweatpants.
0: That's what they do. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. So was there something that you can point to when uh, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs came out that that broke it? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Was there, a re- was there a review? Was there a something?
1: There was actually a real negative review in the New York press, which I think probably had some help because uh, th- I think that... This guy hated the book so much that it sort of made it seem important. I think that that actually, in a weird way, because it, it you know it's like if you get a great review, your sales go up a little. If you get a bad review, your sales go below. They don't generally have that much impact unless they're just not so. And that was that was part of it. Um, I don't. But actually, the real answer is I don't. And. To be honest, it's like – it's not like this isn't something we talked about with my publisher and my agent. Like we have many times discussed why did that happen, you know? I, to me, it seems like honestly kind of on the weaker of the books I've done. Like I, I don't like it that – like I think there's a lot of problems with it. It's too loose and, you know, I, I mean I wrote it so fast. Maybe that's what it is. I mean you know how sometimes with musicians, it's like the music people like is like before they know how to play – yeah, something about or something
0: it, yeah. they scribbled on, like, the back of a napkin and wrote in 30 seconds. You you know? Know
1: the, uh, the title of that book originally was American Minotaur, and I had this whole weird explanation as why I wanted to call it that, but people at the publishing house and my agent were like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, you're going to regret that if you do that. So then I kind of came up with Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, like, well, here's, like, okay, just use this then. Use this as the title. I hate that title, but yet maybe that's it maybe that for three some things, reason. three things
0: three things that America loves
1: yes and that and that somehow they, the cover i i i don't know i think in some ways it was like it just kind of predated the internet as a meaningful thing for the average person and i think a lot of the way people write on the internet is sort of unconsciously loosely modeled on this style that you just like well you like something you care about something you see significance in it And that's all you need. You don't need someone else to vet it and say like, well, okay, you can only write about these kind of canonical ideas or whatever. I mean like there's an an essay in that book on Saved by the Bell, the TV show. And part of the reason I did that is just I was like, well, what is something no one thinks is art and yet has the components of art? Yeah, Like, you know, it has, like, character and narrative and conflict and all these things. But nobody would ever see it as being a so I was like, well, to me, the thing is, it doesn't matter what you think about. It's how you think about it. That was the driving theme of that book. So,
0: And what well, I was going to say, it also had a big audience. People like Save Life About. Yes, the they
1: knew what it was. Yeah. I mean, that was this, also what that – with Fugger Rock City. I think a lot of people who read that book weren't like, I love Poison. But if you grew up in the 80s, you knew who Poison were. Yeah, Like, it was – like, there is – so much criticism is about things that the average person has no context for you know they're they're talking about films or music or books or things that like or you know like the way television criticism is now like most television criticism is focused on shows that have a viewership of less than a million people you know um, so I'm always like well if you're gonna have this conversation you know why not have it about the Rolling Stones so everybody in the world can be like well at least I know what the subject is because yeah. the ide- I'm interested in the ideas. The ideas, anything can be a vessel for the ideas, you know. Anything can, if you're talking about big ideas, particularly, they can be that can be filtered through many things. So why pick something that is consciously obscure when all that's going to do is just l- limit the number of people who can deal with the idea? Because yeah. you know. Yeah.
0: It's accessibility.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you. So, but when
0: you're starting, you're starting from the idea, and then finding the vessel through which to explore the idea after the fact.
1: What usually happens is you see something, I see something, or I watch something, or I hear something, and I get the idea from that. Um, but then, what I choose to write uh, will include that thing and maybe something else. So it is possible, and it's kind of a weird way to describe it, I guess. But that's how it is. It's sort of like. Uh, I might be watching a basketball game and something happens in the basketball game or the way the game is being framed by the announcers or whatever that makes me think of an idea, like a big idea. Like, it's interesting this is happening. And then I'm like, well, does this idea apply just to this game or to many things? And usually the answer is many things. And if the answer is many things, then I write about it and I write about many things. But I don't really know it's... It's not like I start with an idea and look for places to place it. It does seem to come out of the things. It's just that I have a real kind of capricious, unorthodox consumption pattern. Like there's…
0: But it works for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I'm i always afraid it's going to stop. I mean, that's always my fear, that just one day it'll stop. <laughs> but, but,
0: I mean, you know, I think part of it is intake. I mean, you know, that, however capricious your consumption pattern is, like you're paying attention to things that interest you. Mm. You're paying attention to what you notice, you know, the things that, like the basketball announcers framing a game a certain way. Like you're noticing what's interesting to you, and mm-hmm. then you're… You're not just letting it pass you by.
1: But that's all you can do really is just try to write about what's interesting to you. Like there's, it's impossible to anticipate what people want. It yeah. never works. Yeah. yeah.
0: But you know what's interesting to you. Yeah. So, And you just hope that they care too. Well, with the latest book, like, what was the genesis of it? Did you have some sort of, you know, were you watching a game? Were you at mm-hmm. a concert? Well,
1: I think in a way I, I've, there's like three answers to it. One is that I think maybe I've always thought about the world in this way. I never thought of it as a book, but I just thought, I've always felt, even when I was a real little guy, it's like, I feel like the way, all the things that we accept about reality, it doesn't seem, I'm not secure in that. You know? And then, starting with like, Eating the Dinosaur Invisible Man, those two books, I think that my sh- thinking started shifting like these kind of what are reality type questions, which... You know, it seems a little stonery, but I, it's what, I, how I think about things. Do you
0: smoke a lot of pot?
1: Um, well, it's a lot. I don't know, <laughs> you know. It's like, who am I to say? <laughs> um, but, uh, but then uh, the – so I was kind of moving in that direction in a more kind of aggressive, conscious way and like doing the ethicist at the times that was part of this too. But then, I mean I did have a thing where I was watching the reboot of, the, of Cosmos on Fox. And They were talking about scientists. Was this Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. 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 They were talking about very often scientists, kind of uh, like non-famous scientists from early periods of time who had an idea that changed everything. And then within a generation, it was assumed like we'd always thought that. And I was like, well, that must be happening all the time. It's just not visible to us, but it must be happening all the time. And then I was reading about Moby Dick. I always mention this. I wasn't reading Moby Dick. <laughs> I was reading about <laughs> it because I was on the internet. I probably was, for all I know, I might have started reading about Moby Dick, the Zeppelin drum track. Like, I might have started with that, but somehow I was reading about Melville's yeah. experience and sort of how, you know, he thought that was going to be his masterwork and then it came out and didn't sell that well and got mixed reviews and ruined his life and then it wasn't until after World War I that there was this realization like, well, this isn't just a good book. Like, this is the book. Um, and I was like, well, okay, so this is subjective. This is art. But the other thing is objective. It's science. But in both cases, it's like the way people viewed reality as it was happening is totally different than the way we sort of define it as being. And that's kind of was the beginning. Like those, the fact that those two things happened – like, on the same night. It's possible I was watching Cosmos with my laptop open, and I was doing both at the same time because I do that sometimes.
0: Sure. Yeah. There's yeah. as many screens as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what about uh, – you interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. You interviewed Richard Linklater. Yeah. How was that?
1: Uh, well, Neil deGrasse Tyson was – he? that was the only interview that was a little bit adversarial because I really think, and I understand why, that because he's become the face of science – he assumed that this was some kind of trick, like I was a climate change denier or something, and I was trying to get him somehow to go on record and say that science isn't necessarily real. And so he was just, you know. Uh, but it was a, still interesting. He had very interesting points. Richard Linklater, I had interviewed once before at Spin Magazine. I had also written the liner notes for the DVD of Dazed and Confused. So I knew he knew who I was. How last. did you
0: get that gig, writing the liner notes?
1: Um. They contacted me.
0: They did okay. So it wasn't like he it was, reached out. Well I
1: think what happened was it, it was put up by a company called Criterion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I had a friend named Sean Howe, who's a he's a writer, he wrote a book on Marvel Comics, he's now writing a book on the history of high times. He had worked at Criterion. And I think that what would often happen is when they were putting together kind of a deluxe edition of any movie, they go like, Who are writers who might be interested in writing about this? And you know, I had I had seen dates and confused so many times. I mean I used to Date a girl and we if we were, we would just watch it we just have it on. whenever whatever we were doing we would just have that on too yeah so um uh
0: what is it about that movie it's so comforting
1: it is it it's really like, is it's like
0: i've heard it described like these are the people you like hanging out with these people
1: well and it's the kind of movie that because it's plotless you don't have to worry about following anything the music is really good and it was i mean i just we were both the kind of people like we were into 70s music we were into Everything you could be about is the 70s and that kind of life. We were into that life. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so it just became something that we did almost like uh, it was a way to avoid making decisions. Like, what are we going to watch tonight? It's like, <laughs> well, let's just put this in and not watch it. you know? Yeah. Um, so they just said, would you do this? And I was like, sure, I'll write an essay for this or whatever. And I did. And, and then uh, I had a hard time getting a hold of him because I didn't know how to get a hold of him for this and – but you know, I, I had a relationship with Grantland and uh, Alex Papadimus, who's a very good friend of mine, had interviewed Richard Linklater and I was like, did you have a contact person for him? And he was like, well, I have this person. I, just, I ended up getting him and he's a very busy guy. He was actually uh, – it was an interesting thing. We talked on the phone and he was like sweeping the floor of his studio. I think I could hear the broom go swoosh, swoosh. It was <laughs> great, but a great interview. Sure. And then he was like, hey, I, so I just fin- – I said like, what are you doing today? And he's like, well, I've just finished the rough cut. Of this movie that I think I'm gonna title after a Van Halen song, and then we—I was kind of laughed, and then we talked about Van Halen for a while, and then the conversation was over. And now I realize that that was everybody wants. I, I haven't mean, seen it yet. I'm so yeah. pissed. Yeah, I, I didn't get to the theater. Have that's the—that's actually the only movie I've seen in the theater since my second kid was born. Because oh. I, did, I wanted. I felt like
0: same thing. It's yeah. all hard to get to the theater when you have little ones. So, but yeah. it, was it good?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, the thing is though, his movies are are kind of a weirdly specific thing for me like the movie Slacker like I hate when people say oh like this band changed my life or whatever but like I gotta say that movie changed my life why like I was I mean I just okay I was living in a basement apartment between my sophomore and junior year in college I was living with a guy named Rex and uh, I came home in the afternoon and he had he was like 15 minutes into it and he stopped it and he was like I'm gonna rewind this I think you're gonna like this movie, so we watched it. And much like that John Feinstein thing, we immediately watched it again. And I think for both of us, me at least, I shouldn't speak for him, but this seems crazy to say this now. Like, it, but it had never before occurred to me that you could have a story without a narrative. Yeah, I had never had that thought before. Like, it like I was young enough. I was well, I was twenty, I think, or nineteen, um, and. I was just like these people like these are the people that when I I've never met them and yet I kind of know versions of these people and and it made me want to be sort of like maybe the the counterculture is the more interesting I just in many reasons for many many reasons that and it was like it was also you know that movie never played. I don't think it ever played anywhere in North Dakota in theaters. So it was to be into that movie was an interesting thing. Like you know, it was not like a movie everyone else cared about, which when you're 19 matters more. Um, so since then, my life and his maturation of an artist seem like they've kind of been interlocked. Like a lot of the movies he's done seem to fit into parts of my life. So when I watch a movie by him. I'm almost hypercritical of anything that's wrong with it, and yet, in the abstract, I love it. Yeah. So, like, I'm in the theater and I'm, I'm thinking about everything about the movie that I would be like, "Well, is that accurate? Would I do that differently?" And then I walk out of the theater and it was like, "It was great." Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and it's also he's deceptive too because you talk about uh, making a film or uh, telling a story without traditional uh-huh. narrative. Um, it's easy to trick yourself into thinking that that's easy. You just turn the camera on. And, yeah. But he's he's sneaky.
1: He's well, sneaky his, good. His thing is that. I think more than anyone else he is the best at dealing with the concept and perception of time. Right. I was just going like, to say that that's yeah. why he fits
0: so well into your book. Well,
1: I mean cuz like Dazed and confused the thing about that movie is that's not how I don't I mean in my so I always always kind of argued. I mean I was only 4 in 76. But to me it seems not how high school was, but how one would remember it. Mm-hmm. You know everybody's wearing bell bottoms all the music is from that year or whatever, you know. It, it's not actually how it was, but how you might remember it. I mean, Boyhood, obviously, that's a big part of it. Um, what you a know? great film that yes. is. Yes, and, like, uh, uh, you know, a lot of his things about dreaming and all these things are, are, have to do with this, like, kind of the weirdness. Even, even like, A Scanner Darkly, he manages to make that movie into something about the, the relationship between... How reality looks and how reality is. I mean, it just seems to be what he does. I was you know? going
0: to say yeah. time. It's time, but it's also reality. Yeah. He's he's playing yeah. with like you know the nature of reality or how we remember things, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I'm am a huge fan of his.
1: But I was just really happy he he talked to me for that. Uh, you know, because in general, I will say this. It seems like part of the reason that I feel that this book is maybe better than some of my other ones, at least in a technical sense. is because the interviews in it are more present and better. But I had to write eight other books before I get in a position where if I call someone, they'll be like, sure. Yeah. And almost yeah. everybody said sure. That was like – I mean – if I had tried this when I did Cocoa Puffs, I would have never worked. I wouldn't, you know, you I was a few people interviewed in that book, but it was, it's like Bob Ryan from like the Boston Globe. That was a big get. <laughs> like I was really happy. He talked to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, do you think we're improving? Like when you, when you think about like history, um, human progress, uh, you know, the way that we were wrong in the past and how clearly we can see that now, the way that we're probably uh, thinking wrongly now and that eventually we'll have clarity on that. Like, do you feel like there's forward progress being made? Is it some sort of weird spiral?
1: I think it's probably in the same way that anybody would say like, well, at 44 am I smarter than I was 20 when I was 22? Absolutely. I have 22 more years or 20 more years of knowledge. Um, but am I better off? Like very often the self-awareness and the knowledge makes you a more complete, but yes, less happy person. I mean, Obviously, as society moves forward, we're compiling more information. Technology is improving. In a superficial way, we are irrefutably better off. You know, but the experience of being alive involves lots of things, and some of those contradict uh, things being superficially better. I mean, you know, we use you know, all these examples. Or I use these examples in the book or whatever. It's like, okay, uh, you know, there was a time when you know people were like, "Well, we're real." happy you know we used to think illness was caused by the gods now we know it's trolls and gnomes or whatever you know it's like trolls are getting making us <laughs> sick you know and people we, of course it's funny but at the time that was like we've never been better off than we are now we used to imagine this thing happened from the sky now it's from little creatures. you know so you, you're al- you always feel that way you're always going to feel like you're better off as a society based on the knowledge you've required but I don't know how attached that is to the, to the, like, because what is the goal of life? No one knows. So how do we know if we're getting closer to it if no one knows what the goal is?
0: Yeah. Like, where, where do you fall on all that stuff? Are you religious at all? You raised Catholic? Well, I was
1: raised very, very Catholic. And the thing is, it's like, when you raised Catholic the way I was raised, it doesn't matter how much you practice it doesn't it's maybe. in it's in your in your bones it's in everything i do
0: but how, how hardcore cuz i was raised catholic too but like were you an altar boy did you yeah, do yep. you did all that yeah. stuff
1: yeah i mean my mom I goes goes church every day still yeah. yeah um it was you know the most important thing in my parents life and uh, it consciously but mostly unconsciously informs everything about me i mean my wife often brings this up i never thought of this As an extension of Catholicism, but I bet she's right. You know, Um, anytime I am hungover, you know, or I really go too far on a night, the next day I wake up early and go to the gym and work out twice as hard. I punish myself. I'm sort of, I'm sort of the same way. (laughs) And she's like, "That's so Catholic of you to do that." I do the same thing. I, I. I do many things, I guess, that she kind of views as a kind of punishment for any pleasure I have that seems gratuitous, you know? Uh, I think the way I am with, like, money and stuff is inherently conservative and somehow that is tied in to that. I uh, I am just – I don't know. It, it's, it is – just is still a central part of everything about me, even things that have nothing to do with religion whatsoever. And of course, like anyone, anyway, you know, it's like it's, you get to a certain age, and a lot of the ideas of any religion start being like, "Well, that makes no sense," and it's like, "This is actually, this isn't just reactionary. This is probably socially detrimental." But it doesn't matter. It just does not matter. I mean, it's like if if you ra- if you're raised your whole life to believe that there is a tiger in the front yard. And he will protect the house. But don't go outside because then he will eat you. <laughs> and then at one point you realize, I've never seen that tiger. It's not like you just start walking outside. it's, it's not how it goes. It's yeah. like the tiger is always there.
0: He's in yeah. your head. Yeah. And so did you have like a break? Like, Do you go to church at all?
1: Well, I don't really want to talk too much about religion. Okay. If that's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. All right, man. Um, <laughs> well, where are you Where are you off to next? Like, talk about your tour a little bit.
1: Well, okay. I, I did, like, you know, like Boston, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York, you know, the first week. Then last week, it was Minneapolis, and Chicago, and St. Louis and Austin. And now today, I'm in L.A. And then tomorrow, San Francisco. And then... Uh, Seattle and Portland. Then I go back to New York. So now I go, I also, I go back every weekend to see my kids, which is, makes this – I'm flying every day, basically. Oh, my God. Um, then the next week when I'm back home after that, I'm doing the Daily Show this time, which I've never, ever done before. Oh. And I have one more event in Brooklyn, um, and then that's done. Wow. Yeah. That's a hell of a tour. Well, I, you know, the thing is, they don't really put people on tour anymore. So when they say, we want to do this, you got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And – I love staying in these hotels, man. Yeah. Boy, these hotels are nice. I have never stayed in hotels. In this in fucking in this garage. It's yeah. 115 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, listen, it's such a thrill to meet you. Uh, thank you so much for coming over. Congratulations on the book. And well, thank you. Best and of I'm, luck with whatever's yeah, next.
1: I'm flattered that you had me here. I appreciate it.
0: Chuck Klosterman, ladies and gentlemen, go get his new book. It's called But What If We're Wrong? out there now from Blue Rider Press you can follow Chuck on Twitter his handle over there is at C Closterman he's also got a Facebook page I believe thank you to Kill Rockstars as always for the music Uh, this song is called Fake Pajamas (laughs) let's listen to Fake Pajamas for a moment imagine Chuck Closterman and I sweating profusely in a small darkened room while this song plays don't forget about the other people app uh i talked about that at the very top of the show it's free it's out there now wherever apps are available if you want to uh email me send me a letter let me know what you think my address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other So I'm, uh, I'm out of town right now I'll be back next week It's like why am I even telling you that I'm out of town uh, Nothing's changed The show's here It's like I'm going anywhere I don't take breaks I should take a break Maybe I will At some point. point Five years in <laughs> My compulsive podcasting Continues Without abatement please remember that Anton Chekhov died in Germany and that his coffin arrived in Moscow in a freight car that was labeled oysters and that uh, Sigmund Freud ran his household in such a rigidly patriarchal manner that his wife was literally expected to have spread the toothpaste on his brush every morning. That's it for now. Uh, I think that's it for now. I'm going to wrap this up. It's very warm still. Thanks to Chuck Klosterman for guesting on today's episode. Go get his book, but what if we're wrong? And uh, thanks to you guys, as always, for listening, tuning in, supporting the program. This song feels German to me. I feel like somehow this originated in like Germany, you know, in a warehouse. Imagine me dancing to this with Chuck Klosterman. (laughs) All right.